circuit court judge for 30 years in rural Virginia. And in 2000, after 20 years of rejection letters, he became an overnight sensation with the publication of The Many Aspects of Mobile Home Living, a New York Times bestseller. He's been acclaimed as the country's best writer of legal thrillers and is compared to John Grisham. But he's got a better comparison that you'll hear momentarily. Martin Clark, welcome to the Cultural Scavenger. Uh, well, thanks for the invite. It's fun to be here. Um, and um, uh, I look forward to, to talking for a little bit. Cool. Well, you're a prolific writer, which we'll get to momentarily. But before you got published, you had a pretty interesting J job as a circuit court judge. How did you arrive there? Um, I was a classics major, a Latin major in college, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. And, and, and several people suggested to me that a law degree was sort of a, a degree that you could use universally, that you didn't have to practice law, it, that it would mesh well in a lot of different vocations. And since I didn't want to get a job and I didn't know what I wanted to do, I decided to go to law school. And uh, I went to UVA and got my degree and quickly learned that that law degree was good for absolutely one thing. And that's practicing law. Uh, I can recall I, I wanted maybe a year or two into my legal career, have always been interested in writing, and I wanted to teach creative writing. And I checked at several universities and they just laughed. You need a PhD in English. You don't need a law degree. Would you like to teach political science maybe? And I began practicing law and, and I enjoyed it. It was, it was really fun. Probably eight years into that, when I was 32, I uh, started working in district court. When I was 35, um, I started in circuit court, and now I am retired. One good thing about starting early is you can retire early and happily and devoutly retired. I, someone had sent me a request to be on a, a, a CLE, a continuing legal education panel today, and I said I am devoutly and happily retired. And, and I think part of that in, in being a judge when I was a young lawyer, there were so many judges who defined themselves by the robe and by the gig. They, they were a judge first and foremost, and they hung on too long. I don't think any of us want to be Willie Mays in a Mets uniform dropping fly balls or Joe Namath on the sidelines in the rain in a Rams uniform. But these, you would, you would be in court and you knew who they were. And here they would come, sub-judges, called in because your regular judge was on vacation or infirm or couldn't be there. And they hadn't picked up a, a code book in 15 or 20 years. And they were grumpy. And if you challenged them, they were defensive. And, and I didn't want to be that person. There's a lot, a lot of work if you do the job correctly, a lot to keep up with. And I didn't want to be that person. So I was, I was happy to get out of there when I was 59. What was it like being a judge? I mean, what was what was the most interesting case that you had to preside over? Oh, uh, I'm not really sure about that. You, you learn early on in the gig that everything, your case is critically important to you. From alpha to omega, everything is important to the person who is there. 
And something that seems to you and to me inconsequential could be very, very important uh, to a litigant. For instance, it's it's at the end of the docket and it's the an a, a appeal of a speeding ticket. And for you or for me, I mean, it just is, it's a speeding ticket. But suppose you're, you're a truck driver and it would impact your livelihood, perhaps jeopardize your CDL. It, something that small can be really important to someone. And probably the most important thing that I did, I always thought I did for three years, child custody and support cases. And often in circuit court, all we do is sort of hand out punishment and put seals and ribbons on things after the fact. And I'm not sure how impactful any of that is. But occasionally when I was in district court, when I had a custody case on appeal, I felt like I had done something worthwhile and I'd helped somebody. And occasionally I would get a letter or a note or a visit from a kid who would say, thank you. You, 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 uh, you put me in the right place. You listened to what I had to say, and it has worked out well for me. So those would be the most consequential cases, the most rewarding cases. Probably the most challenging decision that I made was, and I live in Stewart, was removing Jeb Stewart's Confederate picture uh, from above the defendant's table in my courtroom. <laughs> Um, as you might guess, that was not and still is not a popular decision in Patrick County. No, it is not. And, you know, it, it was I knew that it would be unpopular. What really was interesting to me was how vociferous and, and I'm guessing that you have experienced this in, in another context, probably more than I have. But total strangers who have no real investment in the issue, who would write threatening, malicious, vicious notes and letters. Yeah. I mean, who, who does that? The people and, that are living in their grandmother's basement. <laughs> and we, I receive so many of them. And it's funny that you say that. I receive so many of them, but it comes with the territory. And I was very used to it. Yeah. I've always said that as a circuit court judge, the noisy, loud, threatening defendant or litigant is not the person who's going to cause you a problem. The person who is going to harm you is the man or woman who sits quietly while you shave 15 minutes of visitation time or, or draw his boundary line half an acre differently than it was before. And he's the guy who's going to walk out quietly and shoot you in the back of the head while you're mowing your yard. The loud, noisy people usually are loud, noisy people who have no substance and, and are not that dangerous. Yeah. There was one man who kept on and on talking about where he was going to bury me and no one would find it. And my wife became alarmed. And so the state police investigated. It was easy to find him. He lived in Roanoke and guess, and I'm not making this up, Andy, guess where he lived. He lived with his mom in the basement. And when the police <laughs> got there, he cried and boo-hooed. And they, they said, do you want to, and I said, no, just, you know, and he, and he wrote me an apology letter and, but he really was in his forties. He had a part-time yeah. job working at a grocery store and he lived in the basement at his mother's wow. house. I kid you not. 
No, I, I believe it. And, you know, I use that sort of as a metaphor for, you know, these cretins that, that crawl out from under the, <laughs> the basement or the rock. But that's pretty funny that you actually came across one that, <laughs> that really did. It was, it, that's, it was accurate. That's, that's funny. Well, we share the, the same challenges of living in a, in a rural area. You know, it's it's funny that you talk about living in in, in rural communities and and sort of the the ethos here. It was a really compelling little vignette that 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 I don't talk about a lot. That came out of as as we were getting death threats and all this clamor. I am it, it truly didn't bother me because I, I was used to it, but it did alarm my wife. And and the next thing I know, there's a knock on our door. And, and outside are my friends, a group of them, and some of my kinsmen. And they are all dressed in camo and armed to the teeth. This will be of interest to you. And, and they announced that they had come to safeguard me and our property and my wife because she had alerted them. Wow. And I said, guys, listen to me. Everything's going to be fine. This will blow over in, in a week or 10 days. All you are going to do is stomp around in the woods and, and end up shooting a kid with a water balloon. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm grateful for your support and, and I really appreciate this, but let's load up and go on home. And you're sure. Yes, I'm sure. And it really was noteworthy and gratifying and moving that these people wanted to do that. And sure. the punchline is as the last vehicle pulled out a pickup truck, I noticed the Confederate flag sticker <laughs> on, 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 the, on the back of the vehicle. Um, and, and it was really, I, it was very nice that, that one of my friends had valued my friendship uh, over and above his, his embrace of Confederate philosophy. That's, there, that is, that's a good story. That's there's good. an inter- interesting duality in, in living in the country as, as we Yeah, do. you know, because, yeah, as you say, I mean, it was that was an endearing gesture that these folks made. It's very sweet and generous, and it's also horrifying at the, yeah. Same, yeah. At the same time. That, that you would have to make that choice. You yeah. know, that, okay, let's think, okay, I'll pick Martin today and make sure nobody, you know, comes out and does him harm, but... But by gosh, I'll be there at the rally to make, you know, when we protest in front of the courthouse and wave the Confederate flag. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned that you wanted to teach. I mean, when did you decide I'm going to start writing books? I began writing in college and, and loved it. Some of the riffs that I wrote whenever I was in college, I guess I graduated in 1981. Some of those riffs actually ended up in my first book. That's how long it took me 20 years to get published. Um, wow. And, I have, I kept all my rejection letters. And one of the things that I do is when I do book events and book gigs now, I often read them and there's, I have some doozies. I should have brought along a couple. And in 1999, my agent called and said, I think that, um, that Knopf and Gary Fiskajon are going to publish your book. And this is at the end of 20 years of, of, of just rejection letters and frustration. And that's when I decided that I would, like a child, make this deal with God that all the money, because all, that's all you ever, and, and you have a sense of this. You and I have discussed this. You yeah. just really want to see the book in print. Yeah. You just want to be able to walk into a bookstore and pick up for Allison and see this, this creation birth yeah. in the world. 
And I was at the point of telling my, my agent, I'll give it away if somebody will publish it. I just want to see it out there. I've worked so long. So I, I make this deal that I'll give all the money to the Presbyterian Church. And, and I did and, and, and continue to to this day. But being a Presbyterian and, and basically a Pharisee or a Sadducee, once I, I go to my preacher and I say, well, I promised the money from the book. What about audio and movie? <laughs> <laughs> you're and what about you're trying to retrade the deal. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm like, well, do I do I have to do I have to give that money up too? So, but we we decided pretty much that everything from many aspects uh, of mobile home living goes goes to the Presbyterian Church, and that has been a nice piece of change. And and then the the next books, I, I basically set up a foundation that, that we try to do nice things with. Uh, in my father's name, Martin Fillmore Clark Senior. Mm-hmm. Clark Family Foundation. You have some sense, I suppose, of what it's like to really, really go through that ringer, though your your trip, I mean, was a lot shorter than mine. It was. Needless to say, after hearing your story of becoming a, an overnight sensation after 20 years, <laughs> mine was an interesting journey. And the the long and the short of it is, is that I mean, I had a great agent that pitched it to every publisher that she knew. The feedback was very similar. I didn't get any rejection letters. They just said, we love the story. We hate the subject matter. And so uh, we finally got a small publisher and you know the rest is history. But to your point, I wanted to pick up a book and hold it in my hands and say, I did this. I accomplished what I set out to do. Now, you, you're a prolific writer. So after after your first book came out, how did it go from okay, well, we're going to take a flyer on this and we're going to throw it out there. And then all of a sudden it becomes a hit on the New York Times bestseller list. Were you, were you expecting that? No. And it's luck and timing. It, it, it really is. That's all it is. And my, my agent used to say, you basically just need one person to really like it. And, and for me, that, that first person was Gary Fiskajon at Kanaf. I, I like to say I'm Gary's or was Gary's only chump author. Um, I mean, he has he's edited, I think, four or five Pulitzer winning books, one one uh, Nobel book and in the industry is legendary. That's pretty stout. Yeah. And so there, there, there are no committee meetings. No, we'll take it to all the other editors. Gary can write the check and, and green light it. And then you have a, a lot of prestige and muscle behind the book. Once that one person likes it, you need one or two other people in the right place, the right time to like it. And Dwight Garner, who is now, I think, the longest serving New York Times critic, loved the book. And and he did not only a review, but a, a, a piece on it. And mm-hmm. the book that I literally could not give away for 20 years, one day the New York Times sends photographers to my house in Stewart and they take my picture in the backyard with the bear spots and the cur dog. And, <laughs> and it, you, you, and it, it's just gangbusters and, and it will not stop. It just keeps selling and selling. And then it feeds on itself. Then, then it's there. Then you get invited everywhere. Then other outlets pick it up yeah. and then it snowballs and then you can dine out on it forever. And then for all the books that come after that, they're, they're the lines like the thinking man's John Grisham. No, even better, the drinking man's John Grisham. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
all that kind of stuff. And it is, it's luck and timing because there are a whole lot of books out there that are better than mine. There's some that are worse, but uh, I don't feel guilty about that catching that particular bolt of lightning in a jar because I certainly paid my dues and got kicked around a long time. But you know, once that happens, you're, you're, you're good to go. And the, um, and the preacher is, uh, did they do a, a Martin Clark <laughs> wing at the, at the church? <laughs> no, you're supposed to, you know, the book of Matthew says to be a quiet giver, but I'm, I'm a failure as a man of faith. So I, I, I tell people all the time that, that, you know, I did that. And, but the, the really fun thing that we've been able to do is the, some of the things that we've invested in, you know, going forward with, with our foundation. And that's everything from basically, it's not a no kill, but a slow kill pound here in, in, in Patrick County. Mm-hmm. We, we've built a field house and, um, uh, just it's been a, a lot of really good things that, that we we have we've been able to do. Uh, and and I've been really lucky. I, it, there comes a time when everybody's in your corner and you're a great story. There also comes a time when that you get on the right hand side of that parabola and, and people seem eager for, for no real reason to say, OK, you know, Martin's really not that good. This book isn't that great. Um, and it just seems to be a, a cycle and I'm not really sure. My favorite book of the five I have written is my second book called Plain Heathen Mischief. It became known as, as quote, Martin's preacher book, end quote. And it has sold somewhere between 30, depending on the day, 30, 35,000, 40,000 fewer copies than all my other books. And it was not a bestseller. It just, and it's the most organic in terms of plot, I just thought it was a really good book, but nobody else likes it. I can tell you that nobody, it wasn't the New York times didn't even review it. Wow. When did you start on the second book? These days, I honestly, Andy, I can't remember back then, but these days, once the book is published, you sort of work on it. I mean, with edits and copy edits and changes and, you know, all the rollout and the tours and publicity, you sort of work on it till it's published. And, and so from pub date, I take six months off, which is usually mm-hmm. for me, I'm, I'm usually published in the summer now, June or July. So I will start the next year on an, I take six months off and sort of enjoy it and, and recharge batteries and enjoy book tour, enjoy being out and, and just catch my breath. Your latest book, The Substitution Order, I I love that. I like your phrase. It's a John Grisham novel, only better. The Drinking Man's John Grisham. I think that's 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 yeah. great. Yeah. And, and one of the things I got a kick out of was our mutual friend Ward Armstrong, who is a local attorney oh, yeah. here, who is was also on a on an episode of my podcast. He, he appears as a slightly fictional character in your book. He got he got a kick out of it. He he, he, he really did. I I would never mention anybody by name, even though the book is fiction or all my books are fiction, if I didn't really like them. And anybody I mention by name or anybody who's identifiable, I always treat well with a couple of exceptions. And, um, and I, don't, I don't regret those exceptions. I will, the, the new book, my new book is called The Plinko Bounce, and, and I have just finished writing it. And, and, but that doesn't mean it is finished. It is written from yes. the but I will spend the next three weeks going back, reading it, editing it, editing it, and then send it to to my my agent probably the end of the month because nothing gets done in publishing land in Gotham during the summer anyway. No, the they don't. Time. Even with a even with a pandemic, without a pandemic, they they it always 
I, that was the other thing that was the the truism <laughs> that I learned is they they all go, they're all gone. Yeah. Everybody's I mean, gone. wait wait till September. I mean, you, you're not going to sell one. You're not going to get it read. I mean, it's just just it's just a shutdown. That's a pretty good gig, isn't it? I mean, it maybe is. It is. And they all. My favorite story about the, the my agent who Lori Liss, who her first book was The Bridges of Madison County. Oh, okay. And the way she was able to get that book, they all take off on Friday at noon. Everybody's everybody's gone from any agent's <laughs> office, publisher, you name it. Well, this was, I guess, back in the early 80s or thereabout. And she was young, ambitious, was still in the office when uh-huh. this author says, hey, I've got this book. Are you interested? And so that's what she said. Well, sure. Send it along. And that's how just by sticking around, that's how she snagged the bridges of Madison County. You retired from the bench shortly after the the substitution order was uh, was published. Right before May, May 2019 yeah. and sub sub order was published in July. And then we, we sat out on book tour. And I think that that was your, did you do it because you retired to the courtroom or you figured, okay, I've got books under my belt. I am a, I'm a real live author. I sell books. Was it more of that that you wanted to devote more time to to books, or just that it was time to hang them up in the courtroom? Yeah, I think three decades. You get any job, and and I really I, I liked being a judge, but three decades, you just you don't want to be hidebound. It's time for new people, new ideas. And if you do the job right, and if you invest in it as you should, if you're attentive as you should be, I, I tell people, imagine taking a final exam that lasts about four to five hours every single day, because that's the amount of focus and concentration and preparation you need. Imagine doing that every day. And after a while, you get you get tired of it and maybe you don't do as as well as you should. That's I'm not saying that's universal. I'm not saying it's applicable to every judge. I'm just saying that those were my circumstances. More to the point, I had a second job that I liked more Mm-hmm. And it paid a little bit. So um, it seemed my term was up. It ended in May. It seemed a good time to to walk away. And I had a stroke when I was 55. So I had a taste of what could happen. And, and that's more. Yeah, that'll underscore for you. Do what you want to do. Enjoy every day and celebrate every single. What did Warren Zevon say? Eat every sandwich. Well, listen. All I can say is that you know you've made it when a craft brewery names a beer after one of your books. <laughs> there, there you go. That, there you go. Yeah, Parkway Brewing, the the remedy. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm so vainglorious. It, it was a it was a one time run. I think maybe they did it for two years. Now I'm I'm jealous. I think they still do Macy's beer, don't they? Factory Girl, don't they still do that? Uh, you know, I don't know, and and maybe they do. I've got to ask Dan Casey for yeah. the Roanoke Times. You know, they named a beer after he those. Campaign to have a beer name. I don't know if that counts or not. So Casey. probably not. And knowing Dan the way I do, you know, I can see that. You know that that the <laughs> he he worked damn hard to get his, <laughs> get, his get his. He's beer. a great he's a great writer, great columnist, and 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 a really good voice for our area. And I think Beth's it's still around. I'm not sure, but I of course bought cases and still have it. And, and occasionally because I am that guy, will just pull one out if I'm somewhere and start drinking. And <laughs> Oh, 
<laughs> oh, no. It's five years old. It's 10 years old, but oh. Boy, yeah, but it tastes great. Oh, man, good stuff. <laughs> it, is, it is really good stuff. Martin, thanks so much for being on the program. It is uh, always a pleasure to, to chat with you. And when can we expect the next one? I, I, you know, if I finish it now, uh, probably this is what, 2021, late 2022, early 2023. And, um, um, that, you know, fingers crossed, uh, I will be working. Are you writing? Are you, are you working on anything else? You're going to write something else? <sighs> you know, I no. the podcast is, this is my book. I was working on something and I was working on, say it was again, kind of memoir, but it was a very interesting, odd childhood. And then my life in theater, you know, I was kind of like you, I was, when I was a kid, I didn't know what I wanted to do either. And so I thought, well, okay, like you, I'm going to go to law school, except that I couldn't get in. (laughs) My grades, my LSATs were just sort of like, they weren't just horrible, but they were just mediocre. And at that point, everybody wanted to be a lawyer including me. And so I couldn't get in, which it worked out okay because I've been a, a good bit of time in the in show business and had a great time. And there were lots of stories there. And so when I approached my agent, I said, Hey, I've been working on this. You want to start working on your next book before your first one gets published. So I started doing that. And it's like, Oh, this is great. This is going to be funny. And, and so when I talked to the agent, she said, it'll never sell. <laughs> I'm going, well, you know, I, well, I mean, that sucks. <laughs> you can certainly be proud of for Allison. And it, it is, you know, I, I don't know that you and I have ever spoken about it in very precise terms, but it's it's a heartfelt book. But it's also something that I wish we could persuade somehow people, at least sort of some fence sitters and middle of the road folks to read it, talk mm-hmm. about it, disseminate it. And, and for me, I, 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 if people ask me about my books, I don't remember half of what I wrote. But at some point in that book, you wrote that you had a, a background that, that made you familiar with guns and that you grew up in that environment mm-hmm. and that you did not want to confiscate people's guns or seize guns. And that you would say that, write that, that was your message that you wanted some reasonable measures implemented that interestingly enough, Andy, most people, the majority of the great majority of people, myself included, agree with. Sure. And then at the at the end, of, you would you would post that on Facebook, or you would say it, and then in the comment section, someone would say, "Andy Parker wants to take our guns." Of course. Do you, do you remember? I don't know if you remember that or not, but that just so imprinted on me when when, when you wrote that in the bigger context of of what happened in your life, what happened to Allison, and the, and the story that you told. And and that's just heartbreaking, that disconnect. And I remember something like a Venn diet. You said, well, there's an X, you know, in terms of reading skill and gun ownership or where, where the Venn diagram hits or or the, or the saturation point is or the, the, the graph intersection. And and that is just seems so true. But I, I do think that there are people out there that it, this would be a meaningful read for them and underscored by how heartfelt it is. So, well, thank uh, you. I still uh, still keep up the fight. And you were sort of comically at times self-critical, I thought, in the book. You know, you're talking about, you know, how you've lost your temper and in, in, in some of your interactions with uh, our, our Senator Stanley. <laughs> and let me yeah. just say, if I were in your shoes at that time, faced with those circumstances, you're a model of restraint. 
you, you know, and, and I think you had some concerns. You thought that maybe some of, of the publicity that came from your confrontations with him and other politicians uh, had maybe undercut what you were doing. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that all in all, uh, if I were shared your circumstances, I thought you were restrained and, and handled yourself well. Well, thank you. And I don't think you did anything to to sabotage your policy. But it was funny. Some of it almost seemed tongue-in-cheek, as I recall. This stuff well, it, it was. Do you think that folks who are connected politically, like our elected officials in this region or, or nationally, think that in their heart of hearts they actually know better? Or do you think they really are... True believers. True believers. It, because you would know you have you yeah. have been a lot closer to that. I, I think that most politicians and then most people in the world are driven basically by money and reelection. And they would if they could be sure at every election, 51 percent of the people believed in handing out a black tar heroin for free. They would be complaining because the distribution chain wasn't going well if it would get them reelected. Yeah, I, I think that's a, an accurate assessment of it. Uh, I think most of these guys, I mean, there are true believers, like I call them the crazy caucus, you know, Bob Good, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt, I mean, those people, they're true believers. I think people like Morgan Griffith. He knows better. He knows better. It's in the, in the, yeah. Um, Bill Stanley, he knows better. Ward Armstrong, our friend Ward once told me that if Bill Stanley needed 100 votes to win an election, but in order to get those 100 votes, he'd have to cut his mother's legs off, Bill's response would be, well, sorry, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure that most politicians don't land there. It's just on, on both sides of, of the island. Yeah, I, you know, there are some that like him. Actually, my, my podcast today is I interviewed Tim Kaine, uh, last week, and that just that just published today. But he's and we talked about that a little bit. But you know, but he's one of the guys that you know he he is not he's he's different. I mean, he wants to do the right thing. I don't think that you know the Bill Stanley model would never that that would never happen with Tim Kaine. And and, and Tim Kaine has a core of decency, and and that core was apparent. Well before he became involved in politics. Yeah. Keep up the uh, keep up the good fight and stay in touch. Thank you, Martin. Good to see you. Take care. You too. Bye bye. Well, that's the story. A special acknowledgement to Marianne Kennedy, Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from "Safe in the Arms of Love," a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? And I'd sure appreciate a great rating in Apple Podcasts, too. I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening. <laughs>